There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace. My guest today has published eight books and researched over 200,000 companies. Now, the interesting thing is when we look across all of that work, it turns out that he finds that there are five big things that the best leaders do, the authentic leaders do. What we're going to talk about today is, A, what are those five, but we're going to dig into three of them in particular. So what do they mean and how do you get better at doing them? And I think you're going to be surprised by what the five are. So my guest today is Jason Jennings. Jason's a researcher and a prolific author. He's worked around the world and a number of books. Um, The first one, It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow. What a great title. That book went to the number one art or the top bestseller list in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and the New York Times, published in 32 languages and named by US Today as one of the top 25 books of the year. After that, he did Less is More, which was also a bestseller, followed by Think Big, Act Small, and that profiled 10 companies in the world that have organically grown both revenues and profits by double digits every year for 10 years. Sounds interesting to me. Next book was Hit the Ground Running, a manual for leaders, and those are the tactics of 10 CEOs who've created the greatest economic value over a nine-year tenure period. Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change, are the secrets of leaders and organizations that have successfully reinvented themselves. That book has gotten a lot of press as well. And his latest book is The High Speed Company, which is how do you create a culture of urgency and growth, particularly in a nanosecond world. Now, as if that isn't enough, Jason also joined with a well-known cardiologist to co-author a book called The 15-Minute Cure, The Natural Way to Release Stress and Heal Your Heart in 15 Minutes a Day. Jason, welcome to the show. Wanda, it is, uh, it's uh, actually great to be with you. And as you were listing all of the books I've written, uh, you make me sound so successful. But uh, let me, uh, I want to point out a story of one of my books that, that was very, very humbling. Uh, you're right, most of my books have all been New York, uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers. But in 2008, my book hit the ground running, probably one of the greatest books I've, one of the best books I've ever uh, written, came out just as the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was plunging to an all-time low and just as the Great Recession began. And what a stupid title for the time, because nobody wanted to hit the ground running in 2008 and 2009. They wanted to run to the bedroom, jump in bed, and pull the comforter over them until this whole thing had passed. So um, along with all those successful books, there was that little clunker in there, too. <laughs> I love that one. Good, title, good book, not a great title at the time when they hit the market. Uh, timing um, is everything. I should also add that Jason is um, a well-known motivational speaker and does, I, I can't even remember how many speeches a year, but it's an astronomical number. What I find fascinating about what we want to talk about is that we're going to look across all of that work, 200,000 companies mm-hmm. that you and the team have looked at. And you say that there are really five big things that distinguish the best leaders. So what are those things? Okay. The first thing that we discovered, and I guess it came to us, uh, or we came to the conclusion about it, uh, probably after my third book or maybe my fourth book, we said there's, uh, there's something that all of these uh, leaders and all of these companies share in common. And one is that they don't have traditional mission and vision statements, but that they are driven and they are united in something much bigger than any vision or mission statement. They truly have a purpose. And the deeper we dug, we came to understand that the purpose they have is about doing well by doing good. So number one is they are driven and united 
by a purpose built around doing well by doing good. The second thing that we landed on is um, I, I don't write about unsuccessful companies. I only write about successful companies and su- successful leaders. But we, we quickly determined that great companies and great leaders exist to grow, but not for the reason that you might think. So number two is they are cultures oriented completely around growth for a very different set of reasons. Number three, they have all mastered the art. They've made it part of their DNA to let go, to let go of those things that actually hold most companies back. Uh, The fourth thing that we found is uh, because they're constantly letting go, they have to replace it with something. And we discovered that great companies and great leaders make lots and lots of small bets. Uh, we didn't encounter any companies out of those 200,000 that we've researched, I, I mean, who, and I'll, I'll mix metaphors here, as I always do, who found themselves standing at the edge of a cliff and about to build, uh, bet the ranch. Because if you've got to bet the ranch, uh, the, uh, the odds are not good. So they constantly make small bets. And then finally, and uh, as big as purpose, um, we really landed on the fact uh, that authentic leaders whose leadership has withstood the test of time and all kinds of market conditions, um, do not see themselves. They don't identify themselves in the traditional definition of a leader. At some point in time, all of these people have seemingly, um, physically probably, looked in a mirror and uh, asked themselves a question. And the question is, is my life going to be more about me or is my life going to be more about others? So number five is that remarkable, authentic leaders are good stewards. And uh, those are the five things that I find myself writing about and talking about the most these days. I love it. So just to repeat five things, it's not the traditional mission and vision, but it's something greater, something bigger that unites people. Doing well by doing good, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's this relentless pursuit of growth, existing to grow is number two. Number three is mastering the art of letting go, meaning letting go of stuff that we've done and how we have done it and what has led to success, which leads to number four, the willingness to reinvent, meaning to make lots of small bets rather than betting the ranch in one big thing that's going to save the day. And number five is being good stewards. It's more about others than it is about me. Okay, so let's start with this whole thing about purpose. And I'm intrigued by your first comment that the mission vision statement is actually not what we're talking about. What's wrong with mission and vision statements? Uh, well, the first thing that's wrong with them is I, I believe that they have been totally discredited. Uh, if, if you start talking about vision and mission uh, to workers today, their eyes roll back in their heads and they go, you know, oh, here we go again, mission and vision. The problem with most vision and mission statements, and you have to understand, there was a point in my career where I taught vision and mission. So this was a hard one for me to get my, my head around, is that, that there's nothing in it for the person being asked to recite or memorize or act in accordance with a vision. Uh, a vision. We strive to be the best customer service company in the world. We strive to be the best restaurant in Nebraska. We're, we're striving to do this, or we're striving to do that. Well, there's nothing that pulls at the heartstrings there. There's nothing that, that really creates an emotional tie and gets everybody on board. And one of the numbers that I follow very closely, Wanda, uh, is the Gallup poll of the American workplace. And uh, within a margin of error of one or two points, the reality is, is 76% of American workers today are either not engaged in their jobs or they are actively actively disengaged from their jobs. That's 76%. And the most recent Gallup poll shows that 51% of all people are actually looking for another job. I mean, they are not emotionally connected to the company that they're at. And so what a purpose does is a purpose asks the very, or answers a very basic question. What do we really want to be? What are we trying to do? Why do we do what we do? Uh, one of the examples that I, I come up with is the story of Cobank. Uh, you might not have ever heard of it. Uh, Cobank does business in all 50 states in the U.S. 
It's not a, not a small bank by any stretch of the imagination. It's about $120 billion bank. It's the only bank in the United States uh, back in 2008 and 2009 that was not required to take uh, money from the federal government under the Troubled Asset Relief Program. And the bank has grown double digits every year for the past 15 years, uh, even during the Great Recession when every other bank was teetering on the edge of a cliff. But if you ask their CEO, I mean, how their, their former CEO who just retired and just stepped down a few months ago, Bob Engel, how he was able to make that happen, he said, well, I took over an enterprise that was kind of teetering. I mean, we, the financial performance was, was not good. And he said, the first question I had to ask is, uh, what, what are we here to do? And he said, it's, it, was, it was just as plain, uh, I mean, as your face. I mean, we're here to serve rural America because CoBank specializes in loaning to farmers and ranchers and rural cooperatives, rural telephone companies, grain cooperatives, cranberry cooperatives. I mean, they serve rural America. And uh, when I was researching the company uh, for my book, it was amazing to walk around the campus of CoBank, and I would stop groups of people, and I would say, hi, my name is Jason. I'm on campus for a couple of days. I just want to introduce myself and meet a few people. I didn't tell them I was there to write a book. And you know when you ask people, uh, what, 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 what do you do here? Well, what they're going to respond is, I'm in marketing, or I'm in loans, or I'm in loan collection, uh, or uh, I'm in HR, or I'm in IT. But when you ask people at CoBank, uh, what, what do they do? They look at you like you just fell off the back of a turnip truck, and they say, well, what do I do? I do the same thing that everybody else does here. Uh, we serve rural America. And Bob Engel would tell you that those four words are what put the company, the bank, on a, tra- a trajectory to be one of the best-performing banks in the world. Uh, we serve rural America. So there's a big difference, Wanda, between saying uh, we, we strive to provide the greatest shareholder return to our shareholders, and that's our vision. Uh, how, how do people connect to that and saying we're here to serve rural America? <clears throat> and as Bob Engel would uh, tell every employee every single day, Look, if you can't get excited about jumping out of bed in the morning, putting your feet on the floor and saying, I am off to serve rural America today, he said, there's no place here for you. Uh, So that's one of the big differences uh, between vision and uh, purpose. The other is that a a purpose doesn't have to change. Uh, The way that companies regularly change their vision and mission statements. Uh, One one more anecdote or one more quick story is O'Reilly Automotive who I have founded in 1956 by a 72-year-old man who'd just been fired as the general manager of an auto parts store because of his age. Instead of going home and sitting on the front porch on a glider and going back and forth and watching the golden years spin by, he rented a building across the street and started the first, uh, the, the first O'Reilly Auto Parts store, a company that has grown to almost 5,000 stores today. No employee who works for O'Reilly Automotive and spends their career there for 35 years as a store manager, has left with less than about $1.7 million in their company stock in their retirement account. And the day that Charlie O'Reilly was opening his first store, he said, we are going to offer the best customer service in the world. And he said, let me tell you how we're going to do that. We're going to do that by making the customer number two. We're going to make our employees number one. Because if we make our employees number one, then we're going to offer the best customer service in the world. This is the only company we've ever identified that has grown by double digits every year for 60 years without a miss. They've never had to change a quote-unquote vision statement because they had a purpose, to offer the best customer service in the world by making their employees number one. Wow. I want to make sure you said they've grown by double digits for 60 years. Let me, let, let me give you the actual uh, numbers, because I talk with their current CEO, Greg Hensley, um, uh, with some degree of frequency. I really continue to follow this company. So they have had 59 years of double-digit growth, and one year they had 8.5% growth. I was going to write in my book that they had nonstop growth for 60 years, and he said, you can't do it. He said, you've got to say 59 years, because we did miss that one year by 1.5%. <laughs> and I don't think I got, anybody would have criticized me for it. And we could not <laughs> find another company that has done that. And the last time I talked to Greg Hensley, I said, how's it going? He said, you know, we've got nothing but runway ahead of us. Nothing but runway. 
That's great. I love this story. I know there's a lot being written at the moment about purpose and about people finding a sense of purpose. I know I personally get jaded by the mission and vision statements only because when I look at every competitor in a field, their mission and vision statements all look identical. So there's nothing that distinguishes them. Um, And certainly nothing that's going to connect the employee to that particular company and loyalty or dedication or emotional engagement, as you rightly say. And and let me tell you what's essentially wrong with a vision and mission statement. A company decides to have an off-site meeting for a couple of days. Generally, it's at a lakeside cabin or a conference center. There's a couple of cases of beer and some cheap uh, cardboard box of wine involved. And, I mean, they sit around trying to come up with this vision statement, and it's got to be politically correct. It can't offend anybody. It has to do this. It has to do that. You can't process. I mean, uh, you, you, you can't process a purpose. A purpose comes from the heart. I mean, we serve rural America. We offer the best customer service in the world. Or in the case of Ikea, the world's only global furniture brand. Their, their vision is not to, to sell the best furniture. Their purpose is, I mean, to help the many. Uh, as Ingvar Kamprad, their founder, told me, he said, we don't sell to rich people. Rich people don't shop with us. We exist to improve the lives of the many. And that has never changed since the day they opened up that first Ikea store. That's amazing. So, I, you know, I can see why this whole notion of some sense of purpose is more engaging, gets people more dedicated, people put in a little bit more, it makes the company a better place to be, and people stick with you. So you lose the cost of having to retain and all those things that we know recruit yep. and retain. But how do you advise companies to identify, to come to understand what their purpose really is about? That's a. Uh... A fascinating question. Uh, I, I won't identify the company, but uh, about a year ago, uh, I was invited to speak to the top leadership of a of a Fortune 100 company, and uh, these were all of their CEOs, and then the CEO of the holding company that owns the entire company, and uh, they they were unanimous. We need to have a purpose. We need to have a purpose. We, we want to do this. And sadly, it's a year later, and they still don't have their purpose. Last time I talked to the CEO, he said, we're getting close. They've had study groups, and they've had off-sites, and they've had get-togethers, and they've had submission contests. That's not where a purpose comes from. I mean, a purpose comes from one person just saying it's a, a purpose comes from when the head meets the heart when the head meets the heart and they say look this is what it really is we serve rural america we improve the lives of the many we end social injustice a purpose and, and, and a purpose has nothing to do with what with the business that you're really involved in Cobank is a lending institution but they say we serve rural America. IKEA is a furniture store, a damn good one, but a furniture store. But they say we exist to improve the lives of the many. O'Reilly Automotive, I mean, we, we offer the greatest customer service in the world. No purpose statement. I've, I've never come across a, a statement of purpose that, has, that says anything about the business that anybody's involved in. It answers the why. That's how you find the purpose. And it takes one person in the organization to say uh, why. And if, if I've got time for one more example. Uh, last year, I had the opportunity about a year and a half ago of meeting one of the most incredible women CEOs. Her name is Ann Promagiori. She is the uh, chairman and CEO of ComEd in Chicago, uh, one of the nation's biggest distributors of electricity. And when she became the CEO of this organization, I mean, there was a brain drain. People were leaving. There was no pride in working for an old-fashioned power company that distributes stuff to the lines. And in terms of employee engagement, in terms of financial performance, she has turned this around. And how did she do it? She turned it around by saying, we're not in the business of power distribution. We power people's lives, for God's sake. There wouldn't be heat in classrooms without us. There wouldn't be air conditioning in the apartment of a 90-year-old woman. There wouldn't be a surgery going on to save somebody's life. 
Nobody would be playing soccer and staying healthy under the lights of a stadium. We're not in the power business. We power people's lives. That's all it took. And when she came up with we power people's lives, people jumped on that bandwagon like you can't imagine. That's how strong a purpose can be. All right. Well, it's a compel- they were all compelling stories, Jason. I have to say, we're going to take a break. I've been talking with Jason Jennings, and the whole idea of, of the five things that the great leaders do that sustain their organizations in great growth, one of them is it's not about the mission and vision. It's about the purpose. What are we here to do? What are we trying to accomplish? And that doesn't have to be the business you're in, as you just heard from all the examples. My guest, Jason Jennings, is a researcher and a prolific writer. A number of books, I'll just mention a couple of Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change, and the most recent one, High Speed Company. We'll be right back. When we come back, I want to talk about one of the second reasons things that successful leaders do. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Jason Jennings. Jason is a researcher, a prolific business writer, and a fabulous keynote speaker. The book that he's probably most known for and most recently is called The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change. And Jason will say this is how organizations have consistently 15 years of double-digit growth. What we're talking about today, though, is across all the 200,000 companies that Jason has studied in the last many years, what is it that the best CEOs or best leaders do? And we've identified five things. One is that they have a sense of purpose rather than a mission vision. And the second is that they exist to grow, that there's a culture of growth. And that's what I want to talk about in the moment. So explain, Jason, what you mean by there's a culture of growth and why does that matter so much? Um, let me tell you where and how uh, myself and my researchers landed on this. Uh, this one had been kind of bubbling for a while, like uh, fermenting wine, I, I, I guess. And, and we knew that all of these companies we're identifying had created cultures of growth. But all of a sudden, it, it became this incredible vintage, this great wine, when I was with um, Mike Long of Aero Electronics, uh, based, a Fortune 100 company based in uh, Denver, Colorado. 
And Arrow, uh, basically, uh, the insides of anything electronic that you probably touch or have or handle at some point in time has moved through the hands of Arrow. They operate in about 100 countries around the world. Uh, the company is now about a 23 or $24 billion company, 17 or 18,000 workers. Mike Long, uh, when we identified the company's financial performance as, as, as a likely candidate for inclusion in one of our books, and I traveled to Denver to spend some time at Arrow and with Mike Long. Uh, he's a very intimidating figure. He's from the Midwest, a former college football player. He's got to be about six, uh, I would guess, six four and maybe 220, 230 pounds. He's a big, strong guy. And uh, But like most big guys, I mean, he's ultimately a pussycat when you get to know the guy. And, and what I noticed during my time with him is all he ever talked about was growth. Uh, we, we have to grow. We have to grow. We're growing this. We're growing that. And uh, one day I, I, I said, Mike, let me ask you a question. I mean, uh, I mean, do you ever get to take a break from your focus on growth? And he said, I can't. And then I proceeded to ask him a dumb question. I said, why? Is your shareholder so greedy? <clears throat> and he looked at me quizzically, and he said, shareholder? He said, you think we grow first and foremost for the shareholder? He said, we don't. He said, we make the shareholder number one by making them number three. He said, when you exist first to serve your shareholder, you do stupid things. You'll lay off people, close warehouses and locations, slash product offerings. He said, we don't grow for the benefit of our shareholder. And I said, well, who do you grow for the benefit of? And he said, we grow for the benefit of our people. He said, Jason, I've got 17,000 people, associates who work here with me. And I can tell you two things about every one of them. He said, one, every one of them wants to make more money. Every, every one of them wants a raise. And he said, the second thing I'll tell you is this. Anybody worth keeping is going to want a promotion. He said, Jason, let me tell you what will happen. If we're not constantly growing, there's no more money for anybody, and there's no promotion for anybody unless somebody dies or politically gets thrown under a bus or retires. He said, we grow for the benefit of our employees, for the people who work here. And then he said something very profound, and I've never heard another CEO say this. He said, you know, if anybody ever feels that they have to leave Arrow and go to work for another company to improve their fortune in life or to get a promotion, he said, I should be fired. I should not be in this position. He said, we exist to grow. I mean, so we will keep the bright, bright people and the great, talented people. He said, otherwise, we'll be like every other company. Just churn, churn, churn. People come, people go. You recruit, you train, you lose productivity. And he said, you'd be like a hamster on a wheel inside of a cage, like most companies, just doing the same thing over and over and over again, but never making any progress. And he said, but when you grow for the benefit of the people who work there, he said, you keep your great people. And he said, if you've got great people, that allows, you to, that allows you to find great customers. And he said, Jason, it's just common sense. If you have great people <clears throat> finding great customers, he said at the end of the day, the shareholder becomes very, very happy. So we identified about nine things that uh, uh, this culture of growth really looks like. And if I could, I'll, I'll just do it line by line. Number one, a culture of growth, Wanda, attracts the right people. I mean, can you imagine saying to somebody who was applying for a job, uh, no, there's not a heck of a lot going on here, but uh, why don't you just come and work for us anyway? Well, I mean, unless somebody was virtually unemployable, they'd run. So it, it attracts the right people. It engages and keeps the right people. There's no need for somebody to leave and go someplace else to improve themselves. So it grows the right people. Now, one of the side benefits is it gets rid of the wrong people. The, the mayors of water cooler town. I mean, the ones who say, oh, it used to be better in the old days, or I could have told you so. Those people disappear from the organization when it's just moving ahead constantly. It improves the fortunes of family. I don't know about you, Wanda. I know why I've made every decision I've ever made in my life. I've never wanted, you pray for health, but I've never wanted anything more than better tomorrows than today's for my family. So if, if you're on a growth bandwagon, it improves the fortunes of families. It allows for reinvestment in the business. Uh, the next one is it forces you to stay ahead of customers. As Mike Long at Arrow says, 
I've got 17,000 people here, and every day, every one of them asks customers, what else itches that we can scratch? What other pain points do you have that we might make, be able to make go away? What else could we do for you to make your life easier? He said, that's why we will never run out of things to do. It turns suppliers into partners because every one of your suppliers wants to grow too, and if you're growing, you become a favorite customer. It keeps the attention of investors. Smart money doesn't stick around for a long time. It makes communities better places. And then finally, if, if you'll allow me to just illustrate this one a little bit, most importantly, when you're growing, it makes everyone feel part of a winning team. Over the years, I've probably spoken to 2 million people in uh, 1,200 keynotes around the world. And at one point in my speech, I grab a handheld microphone, and I ask the audience a question. How many of you have ever been on a winning team? All these hands start shooting up. I go into the audience. And I said, well, tell me what winning team you've been on. Oh, I was on a, uh, I was on a peewee hockey team, and we went on to win a division in a state championship, or I was on a swimming team or a softball team or a Girl Scout troop that raised money to uh, aid burn victims and rebuild a house. And then I stop, and I point something out to them. Out of asking a couple of million people, have you ever been in a winning team? Only eight people have ever told me, yes, <laughs> I'm on a winning team right now. I didn't ask them if they'd been in a winning sports team. The challenge to every leader is to make everybody feel like they are on the winningest team that they've ever been on and they can't imagine to be anyplace else. But in order to do that, there has to be growth. You have to have runs on the board. You can't be going backwards in revenue and telling your team members how incredibly talented they are and how successful you are because it's going to be your, your nose is going to grow, Pinocchio. Yeah. One of my um, favorite sports coaches says, you know, I ask him regularly, what does it take to motivate team players? You know, what are you doing to motivate players? And he says the same thing about sports as well as business. You got to win some. If you're not winning, nobody's motivated. I I don't want to be a losing team. I want to be a winning team. The thing, I mean, we all talk about growth. You know, that's not a new topic. But what strikes me about the era electronic story, and I understand why it struck you, this last week I spent with one of my big clients. I'm talking with a whole host of people about how do you manage their careers. I would bet 50, 60, maybe even 75% of the audience is unhappy with the progress of their career because they feel like it isn't moving quickly enough. Right. And quite honestly, there isn't really a whole lot of speed with which that can pick up because the segments they're serving are not growing. Mm-hmm. So you're stuck, and you're right. People are spending their time looking for other opportunities, going elsewhere, and that's just a bleed of talent right out the door. Right out the door. Right out the door. And one of, one of the things I do when I, when I ask that question, have you ever been in a winning team, I always look at the audience, and I, I love the face on CEOs. When I, I, I look at the CEO and I say, okay, I'm going to ask all of your people a couple of questions. And so I'll say, all right, I want you all to imagine that you're uh, 27 or 28 years of age. Okay, now here are my questions. How many of you want to make more money? Raise your hand. Boom, every hand in the room goes up. How many of you want to have a promotion? Every hand in the room goes up. And I said, okay, do this one audibly. Uh, tell me, when do you want these things to happen? And they resound, now, now, now. Right. And then I look at the CEO and I say, there, that's your job. That's your job to make those things happen. I mean, you know, they look a little sheepish. I mean, because then they totally understand, I mean, what they have to do. Yes, I get that. So, and do you see this culture of growth as something that the CEO or the leader of the organization is driving? Uh, yeah, I think they're the ones who have to uh, uh, who have to drive it. And in fact, I, I, I think it goes one step higher than that. I uh, last week I was interviewing somebody who had just written a new book uh, called Recruit Rockstars. And I was asking him the question of, of, of where it starts. Does, does the recruiting of rock stars start with the head of HR? Does it start with the CEO? And I, th- I thought I was going to be right with CEO. And he said, no, no. He said, you're wrong there. It has to start with the board. And mm-hmm. I would agree that the growth, that the quest for growth and to build the growth story has to, ha- has to be a guiding principle of the organization. And it's up to a board of directors or a board of advisors 
to set policy, and then it's up to the CEO, he or she, to implement policy. So I would actually say that my response today would be it has to begin at the board level. It has to be a guiding principle of the organization. It is the job of the CEO and the senior leadership then to do the things that are necessary to implement uh, the guidelines and, and, and implement what the board of directors uh, has set as a proper strategic course of action. But, but what I find in companies yeah. is it's, it's very, very, very catchy. Um, when the CEO is talking about growth all the time, then her direct reports are talking about growth all the time. And when her direct reports are talking about growth all the time, then the people that report to them begin talking about growth. And as I said, eventually the wrong people are worked out of the organization. Let me just let me give you an example of how infectious uh, this is. I, I have a good friend uh, who is the CEO of a, of a bank based in Wausau, Wisconsin, very, very successful uh, bank. And one day, and he's a, he's a larger-than-life exuberant character. His name is Todd Nagel. And one day, several years ago, he left a message on his voicemail. He said, this is Todd Nagel. I'm not going to be in the office uh, for several hours today. I'll get back to you as soon as I return. Have an incredible day. Well, it seems simple. Well, a bunch of the people who report to him got his voicemail and heard this incredible day thing. And just to spoof him and have some fun, they all changed their voicemails to, this is so-and-so and so-and-so, I'm not available right now. Have an incredible day. And then the tellers in the bank heard it. They began changing their voicemail and the branch managers. And the whole bank became branded as the incredible bank. And they own being the incredible bank. And it all came from the CEO one day setting an example by leaving a message on his voicemail. I mean, it's, it's not that hard to become a growth organization, but it has to be what's talked about celebrated and every move has got to be in the direction of growth and everybody has to understand why we're growing we're growing for the benefit of the people in the organization that's going to allow us to find the right customers that's going to allow us to repay the shareholder what they're due but we're not growing so that the owner could have another Learjet we're not growing I mean so that the big shareholders I mean can uh, take a circle the globe uh, half million dollar vacation we, we, everybody has to understand what growth means to them. It's the responsibility of every manager and every leader in an organization to sit down with the reports and say, let me tell you, this is what this means to you. We're on a growth course here. We're a growth company. And let me tell you what that means to you. I always tell people, every time you're talking to someone, imagine they've got a yellow Post-it note stuck to their forehead that says, so what? <laughs> Yeah, so what? All right, I can see this when you tell the story as a leadership team and as a CEO and as a board on why growth matters because that's how we all get increasing raise and that's how we get promotion and that's how we feel good about being on a winning team and a host of other things. And I can see when you do that that it becomes infectious in the organization. And then what strikes me is that you have employees throughout the organization thinking about what else they're going to do that's going to make a difference to revenues, meaning to customers. And that's called engagement, right? It's called engagement. Yep. It's called engagement. Okay. I get it. So the second thing is this a focus on growth, but not for the sake of putting money in my pocket or in the shareholder's pocket. It's growth for the benefit of people so that employees can get raises and promotions and stay with the company and grow and achieve all the things that they would like for their lives and for their families. Jason, I'm pretty I'm pretty sold on this one. So with me today is Jason Jennings. Jason is has written a bunch of books. Uh, the one I will highlight is The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change. This is about the secrets of leaders and organizations that have successfully reinvented and transformed themselves and achieved double-digit growth over 15 years. Jason studied more than 200,000 companies, and we've been talking about the five things that the best leaders do. First is purpose. Second is this focus on growth. And we'll come back and talk about the third one, stewardship. We'll be right back.
Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. I'm with Jason Jennings today. Jason's written a bunch of books Several of them, The Reinventors, and the most recent one, The High Speed Company. What Jason has done over many years is study companies to find companies that grow successfully over longer periods of time by double digits, and then ask what is it that's unique about those companies and about the leaders of those companies. And across the 200 companies he studied, he finds five things that distinguish leaders of those companies. Number one is that they're led by purpose rather than by mission and vision. Number two, that they exist to grow, but not for the shareholder, for the sake of the employees. Number three is they master the art of letting go. And number four, they reinvent lots, with lots of small bets rather than one big bet. And number five is that the standards test of time, they look in the mirror and say, am I more about me or am I about others? Something we call stewardship. So, Jason, why does this matter so much? Well, I guess, uh, Wanda, it, it was the first big thing we landed on, and it was actually physically. Uh, myself, and I, I, I never go into a, an interview in a company with, with four researchers on my team. I, I generally have one researcher with me at a time. And, and these are day-long events with CEOs where... We basically ask two questions. Uh, uh, tell me the co- story of the company from the beginning and tell me your story from the beginning. And, I mean, that's all. Uh, those are really the only questions. And then, and then, and then, and then what happened, and then what happened. And eight hours can whiz by. And uh, we would walk out. And I remember uh, on many, many occasions a researcher turning to me and saying, that was the most fascinating day I've ever had in my life. You know, there's just something different about this company. And, and this person, I said, you know what, what about the air? They said, you know, the air just seems to be fresher, too. I mean, uh, there's open doors. There's no hidden agendas. There's nobody climbing up the ladder with their nose stuck up the bum of the person on the rug ahead of them. And um, it eventually occurred to us that the, uh, that the people who lead the most successful, most innovative companies in the world and whose leadership, again, has withstood the test of time and market conditions, um, are, are, don't see themselves uh, in the contemporary definition of the word leader. They're, they're very, very different. And through lots of pushing and prodding and discussion, we came to the conclusion that these people understand that every leader, every company, has five constituencies. Uh, they have the people that work there. They have the customers. They have their vendors and suppliers. They have their owners and shareholders and they have the planet Earth, and that their task as a steward leader, as a servant leader, is to improve the lives of all of the members of the constituency, not to improve the lives of the shareholders at the expense of the employees, not the employees at the expense of the planet. They understand that their job, they are tasked with the responsibility of being responsible for the betterment of all five members of this constituency. And as I said at the beginning of the program, it's as though all of these people we've we've landed on, identified and written about, have at some point in their life looked in the mirror 
and said, is my life going to be more about me or is my life going to be more about others? And they have concluded that their life is going to be more about others. And I know we're running out of time, but if I might, Wanda, I would sure like to share with you just a few um, of the manifestations of stewardship that we've landed on uh, inside these companies. Uh, May I do that? Sure, go ahead. Okay, number one. Good stewards, by their, and, and this bucks conventional wisdom. It flies in the face of everything that ever, everybody's ever been told. They share all the knowledge with all the people. Uh, we've been told, I mean, keep your cards close to your vest. Don't let the little people know if you're doing well, because God forbid they might want what? A race. Don't even mention that word around me. But stewards share all the knowledge with all the people. Uh, I was sitting, and this is a, always a political hot fire when I invoke his name, uh, but I was sitting with Charles Koch, uh, the founder and the head of Koch Industries, uh, the world's largest privately held company doing about $120 billion a year in revenue. And uh, he, after about four or five hours, he said, are you going home to California today? And I said, yes. He said, well, here, take this. And I said, what's this? He said, this is our five-year growth plan. And I said, oh, my God, that's an important document. I mean, you, you want me to sign a non-disclosure agreement? He said, now take it home, read it, make copies, give it to whoever you want. He said, every year we actually send a copy to all of our competitors so they, they'll know exactly how and when they're going to die. I mean, which he obviously said tongue-in-cheek. And he said, Mr. Jennings, I feel sorry for you. And I said, why? He said, because you're old. And I said, bite me. I mean, you're about 25 years older than I am. He said, no, only old people believe that knowledge is power. He said, Mr. Jennings, execution is power. And the more people who have the knowledge, the more likely you are to have flawless execution. So stewards share information. Stewards are accessible. All of these people spend a minimum of 50% of their time with customers, asking the question, how else can we help you? What else can we do? Stewards understand the need for growth. Stewards have a set of four or five guiding principles by which every decision in the organization is made. Good stewards have a fierce sense of urgency. If you've got this great gift, what do you want to do? You want to share it with everybody, and you want to, and you want to share it as quick as you possibly can. Stewards get rid of superficial distinctions. I didn't find any mega mansions. I didn't find any huge offices filled with golf trophies and sports trophies and pictures with politicians. All these people work in very modest surroundings, I mean, a, a cubicle like I do and like you probably do. And But the most important thing is this, and I could go on and on, but... One of the questions I've asked every leader I've ever come across and identified is this. Why are you here? Why do you do what you do? And I always say, don't give any bullshit from the marketing department or the communications department. Reveal your soul. Why? Why are you here? Why do you do this? You know, everyone has responded. Different words, but they've all said the exact same thing. Why am I here? Why do I do what I do? You know, because this company has given me more opportunity to grow personally, professionally, and financially than I ever thought would happen to me in my life. Why am I here? I have to make certain that the same opportunities to grow personally, professionally, and financially will be available for everyone who's here today or will ever be here in the future. And that's what determines if you're a steward or a servant leader. And when you say steward or servant leader, do you, do you equate the two of them? To be a steward is to be a servant leader. Well, uh, a lot of... Uh, um, so we identified the phrase steward, good stewards, mm-hmm. and probably 15 years ago. And I've been writing and talking about it ever since. Well, along the way, uh, I became familiar with servant leadership, which is leading by helping others. And finally, one day about six or seven years ago... Uh, a CEO of a company said, you know, I've built this company on two things. I've built this company on your book, Think Big, Act Small, and on the book, Servant Leadership. And he said, you, you're talking about the exact same thing. So they're, they're, they are words that I actually use pretty interchangeably um, uh, in, the con- in the context of great leaders serve others. Okay. Well, and I like this notion that you're thinking about the the broader constituents, the employees, the suppliers, the customers, the shareholders, and the planet Earth. It's not just 
the employees or the shareholders or the customers. It's all of it. And then there's this all this emphasis on how do I make sure that this company is here tomorrow and it provides the opportunities for people today and in the future that I have had within the company. And I have to say, every time I meet a CEO, I admire, I get the same kind of qualities from them as yep. well. I could actually believe that. Yep. Um, I want to come back to something you said, too, which is they're accessible. You said they spend 50% of their time with customers. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, well, I'll, I'll go one step further. They spend 50% of their time with customers. Uh, I think of uh, Dr. Jim Goodnight uh, from SAS in North Carolina, the world's fourth biggest software company with 30 years of double-digit growth, who I've written about in one of my books. And he spends half his time out with customers, tinkering around, saying, what else can we do? What other problems do you have? I mean, what can, be, what can we be working on for you? And then he steals back to their campus in Cary, North Carolina, steals, uh, goes and handpicks a small team of uh, software engineers, and they code for about a month locked up in a room, and they come out with a prototype, and they start beta testing. And, I mean, this is how the company, uh, this is how the company's grown. But I'll go one step further. Uh, my observation is that great CEOs, really authentic CEOs whose leadership has withstood the test of time, spend 50% of the time talking to customers and spend 50% of the time on culture. And you may say, well, when do they have time to do the other stuff that CEOs do? You know what? If you spend half your time with customers and half the time on culture, there's nothing else to do that you can't come into the office and take care of in a couple of hours on Saturday morning. Most of the stuff that CEOs spend their time on I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's because we've got the wrong people doing the wrong job, we've got the wrong culture, we've got the wrong focus, and I mean, they're just bandaging up the injuries uh, on an ongoing basis. It's all culture, and it's all customers. I love that. 50% of their time on customers and 50% of their on culture, and there's nothing really else left to do. There's yeah, a, those there's two there's right. A, Wanda, at the end of the day, there's really nothing else to do. I mean, there <laughs> really, really isn't. I mean, you know, you're not going to work on the financial statement. I mean, you know, you got you got a chief financial person that does that. You're not going to be doing the marketing or advertising campaign. I mean, keep your fingers out. Obviously, you've got the best people in the world uh, to do that. I mean, spend half your time with customers and half the time working on culture, and you got it all nailed. Okay, I love it. I love it. Well, and you can see how this one ties right back into the first one we started <laughs> talking about. This you know what notion. They, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they they just all go together. That's right. That's right. The uh, relentless pursuit of growth, this whole notion of leading with purpose, and the notion that the CEOs see themselves the most important reason for being there is the keeping the company providing opportunities professionally and financially. Jason, we're out of time. It's been fabulous having you on the show. Um, I think the thing that I take away from this one that really strikes me at the end of the day is this sense of something beyond just the immediate numbers, financials, shareholder values, that there's something beyond that we're trying to do, whether that's for the community or for employees, and that that seems to be the driving force for growth, for reinvention, for letting go, for everything. So, Jason, thanks for being with us. I love your mind. I love your questions. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And join us next week for yet another conversation on how you can successfully lead outside of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.